Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm Corey Bretschneider. I'm a professor and a writer. You might have heard me on John Fugelsang's show talking about issues of constitutional law or on Charlena Maxwell's show talking about Roe versus Wade and its demise. Uh, but today what I'm going to do is invite a few guests to talk about the issues that I focused on on these shows in more depth. In my writing and teaching, I focused on issues of democracy, what it means, how we can sustain it, and its fragility. At this moment, those aren't abstract issues. We've suffered through an insurrection that all evidence suggests was incited by and even planned by a president trying to stay in power, even after he lost an election. What political scientists call a self-coup was previously thought to be the stuff that happened in other countries, but it's clear now that it was attempted here. And the threat is ongoing. It's a threat not just from Trump himself, although that is a serious threat, but also from Trumpism, a movement that uses lies and deceit, that rejects reason and science, all in the service of electing a president who would cater to the worst instincts and prejudices of the American people. So over the next two hours, we're gonna hear from a variety of people, all unified by the desire to stop that threat, to expose it, and to really resurrect our democracy, as fragile as it is. We're gonna hear from Senator Ross, Russ Feingold, who as a Senator from Wisconsin, fought for campaign finance reform, but is gonna to explain to us now why a deep threat that we face comes from the desire to use a little known mechanism in our constitution to create a constitutional convention that would really do no less than end our democracy. And finally, we're gonna to speak to Amanda Hollis Bruski about the danger of our Supreme Court. We've all learned about the Supreme Court as protecting civil liberties, Brown versus Board of Ed, Roe versus Wade, but at this moment, Hollis Bruski is gonna say and explain to us why the court is really more of a danger to our civil liberties and to democracy rather than a protector of it. So I look forward to talking to these guests and to having you listen to us over the next two hours. Welcome to Pass the Mic on Sirius XM Progress. I'm Corey Bretschneider. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to Pass the Mic on Sirius XM Progress. I'm Corey Bretschneider. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Senator Russ Feingold. Senator Feingold represented Wisconsin and the United States Senate from 1993 to 2011. He's been called a liberal icon for his work in the Senate, including his co-sponsorship with John McCain, famously, of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, commonly called the McCain-Feingold Act. Currently, he's the president of the American Constitution Society. He's the author of While America Sleeps, A Wake-Up Call for the Post-9-11 Era. And I invited him today to the show to talk to us about his latest book, co-authored with Peter Prineville, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what can be done about it. Senator Feingold, welcome to Pass the Mic. Corey, it's good to see you and talk to you again. I've been an admirer of your scholarship for a long time, and I remember a great visit with you when I spoke at Brown University years ago. So uh, thanks for uh, asking me to come on. Thanks so much. And uh, I remember that great conversation and I uh, wanted to continue it. Uh, so let's just dive into the book. Uh, I wanted to uh, eventually ask you about some of the hopeful parts of the book. And you are hopeful about the process of constitutional amendment, given some needed reforms. Uh, but I wanted to start out anyway by asking you about the danger. As you explain in the book, and as our listeners might know, uh, two thirds of both houses uh, and three quarters of the state can ratify a constitutional amendment. And there's another process less known of a constitutional convention that be, can be called. Uh, so in the book, you outline some of the dangers that might happen as a result of the amendment process, especially the, the process of calling a constitutional amendment. And I wanted to ask you about that danger. So, so what is the danger specifically to democracy uh, that Article 5 uh, poses at this moment? Well, Article 5 isn't inherently a danger. In fact, it's, it's a good thing. The founders came up with an unusual compromise. They decided, as you've suggested, Corey, to provide two mechanisms. One is two thirds of both houses uh, and then three quarters of the states have to ratify an amendment. But they also put in there the possibility that if two thirds of the states apply, that's 34 states now for a convention, Congress is mandated to call the convention. They don't get to say, well, is this a good idea? And that's because, uh, you know, there was a real difference between Hamilton, who didn't want the convention mechanism, and George Mason, who said, who didn't want a congressional mechanism. So they put them both in there, but the convention one has never been achieved. It's come very close. In fact, some of the great progressive amendments of the 16th Amendment on income tax, direct election of senators, uh, women's right to vote, many of those came because they were, they were getting close. And the Congress got nervous that there would be a convention that would be unlimited. But that actually leads to the danger, which is right now, this idea of calling a convention has been commandeered by the right, by a group called the Convention of the States and others who are going to gerrymandered state legislatures and getting them to pass these applications 
and counting them in a way that I don't think is legitimate, nor does my co-author, but they are uh, threatening to call a convention and they are preparing for it. Uh, and we, in 2016 in Williamsburg, Virginia, they held a convention, a mock convention, and it was very professionally done. And we could tell by the votes they took where they had each state have one vote. So Wyoming and California got the same vote. We know what they want to do. They, they say they want to uh, basically severely restrict the power of the federal government to do what it currently can do. Uh, so imagine a COVID situation. They want to restrict our federal agencies in a way that they couldn't do much either. So imagine the EPA being hamstrung even more than the Supreme Court has hamstrung it with regard to climate change and clean water. They want to make the income tax illegal in the country. And the worst one, Corey, is they voted their favorite one and their worst one from my point of view. They want to go back to basically John C. Calhoun. They want it so that if 30 legislatures simply vote to eliminate a federal law or a federal regulation, it's gone. So they're gonna completely revamp the federal government and basically gut its ability to function in this country. So this is a real danger. And uh, we think people need to know that that is one of the two jeopardies that we see uh, uh, here in the in the, in the situation. There are some on the left who have proposed joining the movement to uh, call a convention. I take it you, you don't agree with that from, from the book. What do you say to some of them who would say, look, once we have a convention, we might be able to control the agenda. We might be able, for instance, an issue that's close to your heart to uh, propose an amendment to reverse the court's decision in Citizens United protect, um, protecting the independent expenditure by corporations. Uh, uh, of, of unlimited spending in, in uh, campaign ads, or we might be able to, uh, you know, put, put on the agenda some sort of right to uh, basic welfare or basic income. Uh, what's the response to that sort of maybe idealistic uh, way of seeing the convention? Well, first of all, a lot of respect. Uh, I know Professor Lawrence Lessig, Professor uh, Sandy Levinson, we're going to be speaking in his class at Harvard Law School next week. And, and they, with the best intentions, believe that it's important to have a constitutional convention in order to, to fix the Constitution, which does need to be fixed. We do believe that there should be a convention, but not one under the current rules. I don't think it's quite accurate to say that they want to join forces with Rick Santorum and Steve Bannon, who is now strongly supporting this idea. I think they were looking at it a little bit earlier before some of the terrible politics in this country occurred. And I formed their view that maybe a, a fairly com a composed convention could produce good results. We don't disagree with that. But what we are seeing now is that if a congressional change occurs in this election, and if they are asserting already through resolutions introduced in Congress that they already have enough petitions, and they are going to make sure under their mechanism that the people that are the delegates are very, very far right state legislators who are training to do this, and they want to have a mechanism where it's one state, one vote per one state, not the whole delegate. So the whole thing is completely wired under their vision, which we don't think is necessarily the right vision. But it would be wired in a way that none of the things that, that my friends Lessig and Levinson and others believe should happen. And of course, I feel, feel pretty strong about campaign finance reform. We need changes. We need to get rid of the Electoral College. We need to put a right to vote in the Constitution. We need, if we could, getting doing something about uh, one way or another about uh, Citizens United would all be good. But it's a pipe dream to think that under the current political situation, that would happen. 
the opposite would happen. Things would get worse. Yeah. Is one of the dangers here, the sort of unlimited ability to propose amendments by the convention? One of the pieces of history and analysis in the book I found fascinating is kind of once this thing gets started, there's no controlling it. That seems to be the consensus. So I'm wondering if that's one way that that the danger uh, exists and if that's something that can be fixed. There is no doubt that, that is the, the central one of the central problems here. And and, you know, you could say, well, it'd be good. You know, that we, you could have a convention where a lot of good ideas would come up. But actually, it leads to the agenda that we've already talked about of the very far right in this country. So, you know, basically, there is no legitimate argument that you can limit the subject matter. Um, you can't say uh, to a convention uh, here. Here's all you can work on that there's no support for in the Constitution. Now, the people that are supporting this, people like former governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, and Rick Santorum, and, and others, and Bannon are saying, oh, no, no, this, this thing can be limited, we can limit it, that's a scam. That, that's, that's a Trojan horse. Uh, because the, everybody that's really looked at this, like the famous Charles Black, famous constitutional law professor at Yale Law School, said, why are we talking about a runaway convention? There's nothing to run away from. In other words, there are no limitations. And so it would be open. And I think uh, in this current environment, uh, most people think that's a, a bad idea. And actually, it's, it's ironic, but some of the far right groups, uh, very extreme groups also don't like it for this reason, like the John Birch Society, hmm. because there simply is no agenda. So how do you, you know, we think we have to somehow figure out a way of a constitutional amendment to change Article 5 so that there could be some rules put in place for how applications are counted and for what subject matter would be permissible. Uh, for a constitutional convention. One of the things that's really important about this book and the way that you lay it out is, you know, these are procedures that that look at first glance to be democratic, a constitutional convention, an amendment. We've used, as you, you just said, yeah. uh, the amendment process to improve our democracy in fundamental ways when it comes to the right to vote, um, expanding it to guarantee it um, uh, uh, for women against discrimination when it comes to race. Um, we've expanded it when it comes to equal protection, of course, uh, the end of enslavement, legalized enslavement. So the amendment process is crucial for democracy, but you've also outlined how it's a danger to democracy in the wrong hands at this moment. So I wanted to turn to um, ask you about some of the more hopeful uses that, that we've also alluded to. And especially I wanted to turn to one of the things that you're rightly uh, famous for and lauded for, and that's campaign finance reform. Uh, tell, tell us more about how you think we might counteract some of what the Supreme Court has done to undermine your work and Senator McCain's work in, in that area. Yeah, let me first say, Corey, that you're absolutely right, that we our, our view is simply not that constitutional amendments are a bad thing. In fact, we think it's essential. We trace the history that this was the first constitution in the, in the world ever to have an, a, a formal amendment mechanism. And the, the term that people used for it was bloodless revolution, to have change without revolution. So it needs to happen. And so in the book, we talk about the twin jeopardies. One is a, a commandeered right-wing convention that guts the constitution. But the second jeopardy is stagnation, ossification. We almost can't change this thing because it's the hardest constitution in the world to change through particularly through the congressional route. So our view is that we have to reform it in a way to make it not completely majoritarian, but something that is at least more popular in terms of popular sovereignty, having popular votes be part of this aspect of constitutional change, which is pretty much the way it's done in almost every uh, country in the world. 
So what can be done about campaign finance? Well, there are those like Wolfpack and others who think we should have a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Uh, that would be very difficult to achieve uh, given the two thirds barrier in both houses. Uh, but there are those who think it, it's worth spending a lot of time on. I of course had hoped that we would have a Supreme Court uh, under President Clinton, who uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, which would uh, overturn the Citizens United because it's it's a lousy decision. It is has, is based on no serious record. It was a, an absurd reach back to 1907 to, to strike down a perfectly legitimate law, the Tillman Act, that prohibited corporate uh, domination of, of campaigns. So what can we do? Well, you can go back and look at that decision and see that the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy said, well, we assume that there would be complete disclosure of these contributions. Well, of course, the Republicans in the Congress said, no, we're not going to do that. Even though they used to say when they were trying to stop me and McCain, oh, we should just have disclosure. The second thing is, you know, this is supposed to be criminal conduct when you uh, have this kind of contribution and you coordinate it with office holders. Well, of course, they're doing it all the time, but there's no teeth in the law. And so Congress could easily pass a law that puts real teeth into that. The other thing is that McCain and I always wanted to do and introduce bills to do it is the Federal Elections Commission is, is a disaster. It's, it's deadlocked four to four because we have four Democrats, four Republicans. And uh, he and I wanted, and others have introduced it since, a, to create a mechanism where it's a, actually an administrative law agency run by a, an administrator who can actually enforce the law. So those are some things. And in addition, you know, the, the House uh, has passed very strong ideas about uh, people being able to get vouchers to contribute through, through federal uh, tax law to candidates like they've done in Seattle and other places like that. So there are a lot of things you can do, uh, but um, I think it would be too dangerous to sort of say, well, let's let's support a constitutional convention because maybe maybe that'll come out of it. Guess what? That's not what would come out of it. It would be the opposite. Right. And uh, I like to focus, too, on on thinking about legislation and things short of just taking the court on head on. What can we do within the limits set by the current court? Uh, what about court packing? Is it is it is it is are you optimistic enough about working within the contours set by the court in this area? Or do you think it's serious enough that we might think about um, adding seats and and uh, expanding the court in order to restore what I take it you and I think of as a, a constitution more true to the the ideals and 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 text of what we've got? Well, like many people in my age bracket, which is getting up there, um, uh, I've had a huge evolution on this. I am now president of the American Constitution Society, which is the national progressive organization that frankly is trying to prevent uh, the horrible things that the Supreme Court is doing and to make the judiciary reflect the, the diversity of the American people. We decided a year ago to take a step on this that I don't think we ever thought we would. We decided to become one of the first organizations to say that fundamental court reform has to happen. We have endorsed adding seats. We don't necessarily say exactly what plan should be used. There's some that say, let's have a president appoint somebody every two years. But that's one thing we endorse. And frankly, a lot of scholars who didn't think they would uh, support this are changing their mind because they realize these 50 year old people they put on, they're going to be there forever. Uh, and we need to balance it because those seats were stolen by McConnell and by Trump subsequently. The second thing we support now, which I also didn't think would ever happen, by the way, the first one can just be done legislatively. Mm -hmm. The second one is uh, term limits, maybe a term limit, 18 year term limit for a Supreme Court justice. 
Uh, the general view is that requires a constitutional amendment. I, I happen to think, and some people think there might be a way to do it legislatively, but in any event, it needs to happen. And then the third thing we strongly support is what we call sort of uh, process changes or non-structural reform. They don't have any ethics rules for the Supreme Court. You know, Clarence Thomas he continues to rule on, on cases about January 6th where his wife was involved. This makes no sense. And, and I also think that the Senate itself should change its rules to require that if a nomination comes over for Supreme Court, it has to be considered in a minimum period of time and a maximum period of time, because both of those things were violated on the occasion of the deaths of Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. So, yes, uh, in fact, uh, we work hard all over the country, 200 uh, student chapters, and 55 lawyer chapters to advance the idea that we need to take this, uh, some, fortunately, uh, unfortunately, almost drastic step to avoid the, the, the things that the Supreme Court is already doing and is already in another term where they're going to do really disturbing things with regard to affirmative action and other issues as well. And I think I hear the this in your answer that, that you gave already, but I want to focus in on it for, for people who are listening. Uh, you know, we hear uh, people like Justice Roberts say that the Supreme Court is just about calling balls and strikes. And the worry, of course, is that the proposal, uh, which I wholeheartedly endorse that, that you've just outlined the proposals, uh, the worry that they bring up is, well, this is politicization of the judiciary. This is a violation of separation of powers. This is turning the, the Supreme Court into a, some sort of super legislature. What, what's the response that you might offer to that kind of that kind of worry? Well, you know, when the chief justice said the thing about balls and strikes, I was in the room. That was a long time ago. I'm not sure he would have with a straight face say that, <laughs> that they're doing it now because at least he's shown some independence. You know, I voted for him because I had this feeling I could tell that if we didn't have him, we were going to get Alito as, as, as the chief justice. So that was a good vote. And the fact is that he has tried to do something to protect the institution from politicization. But what we have is not a fear that it would become political. That's exactly what it is. And it is, it is quickly losing its legitimacy. And so, you know, people say, well, if you do it, then the Republicans will do it. And, and guess what? They're going to do it anyway. That's the problem. They have shown no respect for norms or rules, and something has to happen not to make the court more liberal, but to restore the legitimacy of the court, which is which is in free fall at this point. So, um, and I, I'll bet in, in in the privacy of his own thoughts that he is wondering how in the world this court, which is really not his court anymore, uh, has run amok into a, a complete disregard for precedent and a political agenda that is. Uh, a minority view in this country on almost every subject and is deeply disturbing. And of course, after the Dobbs case reversing Roe versus Wade and the highly partisan, uh, really uh, outrageous, <laughs> I think, opinion by Justice Alito, that that worry about his becoming chief justice just gets affirmed. And, and yet we're, we are where we are. So so we're, we're in heated agreement. I wanted to pivot a little more uh, to the uh, question of um, January 6th committee and to the other, I think, very true threat to democracy uh, uh, that's being outlined by that committee and just get your thoughts as a uh, former uh, member of Congress on um, the the threat that we face in the current election, the the threat of um, as as I agree with that committee, the the uh, really attempted coup by the former president to stay in power, 
Um, what can you offer us in terms of diagnosis, what needs to be done? And, and if it's possible, uh, I don't want to push it, but, but hope <laughs> for uh, how we might come through this, uh, given the danger uh, that, that we're seeing of not just Trump, but, but Trumpism. Well, I think the January 6th com commission is a, a ray of hope. I wouldn't say it's more than that because there's just so much that is bad. You know, I, I hate extreme hy hyperbole. But this is an ex existential moment for this great democracy. The attack is complete. They are going after uh, the Capitol itself. They're going after uh, the Supreme Court. They are going after our local poll workers. They're going after our Secretary of State and election commissioners. They are trying to create a doctrine, and the Supreme Court may help them, that says that state legislatures can ignore their own Supreme Court and the governor about who won the election. This is a complete assault on democracy. And so even though it was really hard for them to constitute in the House, you know, the Republicans wouldn't go along with it. And not only did they have the guts to set it up, but two Republicans joined. And what Liz Cheney did here, as long with, along with Adam Kitzinger, is, is really heroic in terms of standing up for the rule of law. And those of us that are progressives need to acknowledge that, that they did that and they what they have done is create a scenario where it's more easy to imagine people, for example, supporting the need to fix up the Electoral Counting Act, which has to be done. Now, Mitch McConnell says he's supporting that now, and whether or not he'll stick to it, we'll see. But you know, you have to open a space where it's safe for conservatives and, and responsible moderate Republicans to say, yes, on this one, we're not gonna go along with the Trump base of the party. It's hard, it's painful, but um, it's, it's the only way to save our democracy. So I, I see some hope. Uh, of course, what happens in, in the next few days could really affect this. Uh, if, if, if there are changes and if they go the other route, uh, they'll do things like this constitutional convention. It's one of their highest priorities is to try to call a constitutional convention without a legitimate basis. There aren't enough applications at this point to do that um, and to start gutting the constitution itself. So. Um, we literally, uh, you know, the old Revolutionary War expression was, these are the time that try men's souls. These are the times that try people's souls. And this is a time when we have to stand up for our democracy and be open to people who we don't generally agree with who want to join with us. Uh, Senator, thank you so much. I can't think of a more perfect place to end this than to hear from um, the person who is the author of the most important bipartisan uh, move to protect our democracy through campaign finance reform, talking about the possibility of the future. Uh, and I like how you put it and completely agree, the heroism of, of those Republicans who have stood up to Trump and the call too to progressive listeners to, to see that, to see that the future of our democracy rests and those who are gonna at least at one moment put politics aside and to act to protect our democracy. Senator Feingold, thank you so much for joining us on Pass the Mic. Professor, great being with you. Thanks. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is Corey Bretschneider. Welcome back to Pass the Mic at SiriusXM Progress. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today, Amanda Hollis Brusky. She is the chair of the Department of Politics at Pomona College. And I have to mention that it's especially a pleasure to have her because I'm an alum of Pomona College and it's a school close to my heart. And so having the chair of the politics department is alone a treat. But really the main reason why she's here for us today is to talk about the Supreme Court. We tend to think about the Supreme Court as a protector of our rights. Think of Brown versus Board of Education, or as we've learned in uh, civics classes, a protection of privacy and Roe versus Wade. Uh, But as we know recently with the Supreme Court's opinion on Dobbs, this Supreme Court at this moment is really attacking constitutional liberty and in many ways attacking democracy itself. And really, there's no better person to talk about the politics of the Supreme Court than Amanda Hollis Brusky. She's the author of two books, which really go into detail about the dangers of the Supreme Court, and more importantly, the mechanisms and structures that have allowed us to get to where we are at this moment in our politics. And she uncovers why this isn't just a court that is calling balls and strikes, as Justice Roberts claimed, but it's a court really with a deep political agenda. I'll mention her two books. Um, The most recent, which we'll talk about, is Separate But Faithful, and the subtitle is The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture, and that's co-authored with Joshua C. Wilson. And we'll also talk about her first book, which has made her famous in political science among scholars of the Supreme Court, justly famous, I should say. That book is called Ideas with Consequences, And the subtitle is The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. Welcome to the show, Amanda Hollis Brusky. Thank you for having me, Corey. It's a treat to be here. Uh, Let me start by just asking you about your most recent work, um, Separate But Faithful. Um, Tell us, I mean, what is this movement that you're talking about, not just the right, but the Christian right, uh, and it's involved in, a, in an attempt to transform American law. Tell us some of, of uh, who these people are, where their uh, law schools are located, and, and I'm especially interested, just as a way of getting going, and what their ultimate goals might be. Sure. So my co-author, Josh Wilson, and I got interested in the Christian right 
Um, because it seemed to us from having studying the conservative legal movement for a number of years, watching the federal society grow, become a real mainstream institution within the Republican Party, that there was a sort of fringy movement that was building up parallel to the kind of mainstream conservative legal movement, but separate from it. And we noticed that in the, the last two decades, a new Christian right kind of patrons such as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Tom Monahan had invested incredible amounts of money to build their own law schools. Um, and so the initial question was, you know, if you have all this money and you really want to influence the longer term development of the law, why would you choose to start from scratch? Why wouldn't you survey the landscape of existing legal institutions and law schools and decide to use your money to try to influence the shape and future of those institutions? Um, and, and the answer to that question is because the project that they were pursuing was so radical and so outside of the mainstream that they didn't feel like they could accomplish this project using mainstream law schools and legal institutions. So sort of part of what in, uh, intrigued us about these law schools was not only who was at the founding of them, right? These, these Christian right patrons who have kind of um, been very influential in electoral politics and building the Christian coalition, the moral majority, um, but also this choice that they made to try to build institutions dedicated to God, to restore the law and the constitution to what they believe is its rightful biblical foundations. And to try to do that by separating themselves from the mainstream, and yet they're still under the regulation of the American Bar Association, they're subject to accreditation requirements. So the interesting puzzle is how do you build institutions that exist intentionally outside of the mainstream and then try to influence kind of ordinary American politics and law. So really, that was the driving question behind the book. I mean, I guess the danger, um, and I'm going to ask you more about the danger, comes from the idea that you, you have in the book and you have, this isn't, these aren't your words, you're quoting from people involved in these institutions, but the desire to really put Christianity at the center of the American Constitution. And of course, our First Amendment has at its core the idea that we don't have an official church in this country, that we don't have an established religion, and we shouldn't even have laws. We cannot have laws that relate to or respect the establishment of religion. So I see the sort of worry that, that the First Amendment is on a collision course with the goal here. Uh, but lay out for me even in more detail. I mean, what do you see as some of the agenda items, some of the policy items that um, these groups and these individuals want to accomplish through the courts. Now, we've already seen, of course, we're recording this in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's reversal of uh, the right to an abortion and Roe versus Wade in a, a very aggressive opinion, uh, I'd say to say the least by Justice Alito. What, what is it that, that we might see next if um, uh, these groups have their way? So abortion is obviously one of the main catalysts for the Christian right, and certainly one of the main impetuses for these new Christian right patrons to build law schools, to train lawyers who could then become foot soldiers in this battle, right, to overturn Roe and to reclaim the law and to protect the unborn. And of course, 
during our interviews and thinking about the founding messaging and going through the archives, abortion is writ large and written everywhere. So as you mentioned, yes, sort of the unlikely scenario has already occurred where this group, thanks to President Trump appointing one third of the Supreme Court of the United States, um, including Amy Coney Barrett, who very much is kind of in the milieu of these organizations and networks that um, Josh and I are exploring in Separate But Faithful, you know, because uh, he was able to appoint one third of the Supreme Court, we saw Roe versus Wade overturned. Um, and as you mentioned, that opinion goes so much further than just overturning Roe. It lays the foundation for kind of rolling back other rights if they're not based in the history and tradition um, of our country. And so certainly that was a big goal. Another one that we heard a lot was um, about kind of returning God to the public square in generally, this idea that school prayer had been prohibited. You saw the, the victory last term with the football coach praying the 50 yard line after the games, that that was protected under the first amendment. This idea that even though we do have a First Amendment, the folks that I interviewed would argue that that does not preclude religion and religious expression in the public square. So the, the idea here is that um, discrimination against Christians had become something that was so palpable and so strong that folks who founded these law schools felt like they couldn't bring their religious beliefs into the law school classroom, that they couldn't sort of tie together their deep faith and their biblical principles with the law. And, go, and building these law schools created an environment where not only the faculty felt what they called academic freedom, which is, was an amazing term that just kept getting repeated during our interviews, how much academic freedom they have to integrate their faith and uh, their study of the law, but also, you know, connecting that very concretely to expanding religious liberty, to bringing God back in the public square, um, and to kind of revive what they felt were the founding principles of this country, um, which were based in God and an understanding of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but as understood as God-given, right? God-created. So those are just some of the um, of the battles that they're that they're currently fighting, and it, it has consequences for all sorts of culture wars issues. Of course, right. so we're a long way from the idea that we're not going to have laws that are related to the establishment of religion. It looks like Christianity, in particular, not just religion writ large, is. Uh, in this view, the underpinning of what our, our laws should be. And I guess I'll just ask you as a follow up. I, I you know, I when you're talking about Dobbs, when I think of that opinion, uh, you know, and I read it, I don't just see an opinion about states rights. I see an opinion about the sanctity of life that looks at the founding idea as Alito sees it, at least in his version of history, that is about uh, protecting the, the fetus as a life. And so I worry about a nationally imposed in the long term uh, right to abortion with the idea that the fetus is a person and so entitled to equal protection of the law. I certainly worry about, and I think this is what you were alluding to, the future of gay rights in a world in which you need to find um, an explicit textual protection of a right or it has to be found in tradition, which I think many of these justices don't think there are gay rights in our tradition. They don't look at the values. They look at, at this narrow understanding 
of um, the Constitution. Is that alarmist or is that does that seem consistent with what you're saying? I don't think that's alarmist at all. In fact, I was talking to some of my students in senior seminar. We were reading Aaron Mayo Adams, really excellent book, Queer Alliances, talking about offenses versus offensive versus defensive um, rights episodes and how movements sort of capitalize on protecting what they have versus pursuing kind of positive offensive victories. And to me, the Christian right has long been a movement that has defined itself against the victories of the Warren court, against the kind of secular rights that those on the left had successfully claimed, um, you know, from Roe all the way to marriage equality in Obergefell. But now that they've successfully overturned Roe, of course, Obergefell is still on the horizon. They could go after marriage equality. But but they're pivoting to a more offensive strategy, whereas you mentioned it's about proactively protecting the rights of the unborn, not just deconstitutionalizing the question and leaving it up to states to decide. So if you follow, I mean, one of the sort of lessons of the work that I do and that Josh does is that you have to follow these institutions, pay close attention to what they're doing, and you can sort of see the trajectory of where they're going. Um, in these organizations that supported not only the Christian law schools that we look at, but the public interest law firms that were connected to them, um, the American Center for Law and Justice, right, the Liberty Council, um, that was Matt Staver's shop, all of these public interest legal organizations are now reformulating an offensive strategy, right, to, to perhaps ban abortion, um, yeah, altogether. Yeah. Yeah, the and what I should say that one thing that really makes your work so important for political scientists and really for anybody who wants to understand the court today is that you really take us into these institutions and give us an inside view as to what the discussion is. And you very subtly point out that often things are framed, and this is true of your first book too, as a general, let's just Ask the question, is there a national prohibition on abortion required by the idea that the fetus is a life and protected by the Equal Protection Clause? And, and that's really a ruse to really allow in these more radical ideas. I attended one Federal Society National Conference in Washington and saw a discussion with Hadley Arcus about whether perhaps the fetus is protected uh, under the national conversation. Of course, that's just part of a larger idea that's becoming more radical. And we're seeing it too. It, it sounds like you agree with this and in the justices writings themselves and um, uh, in the Dobbs case we mentioned. I do wanna, you mentioned uh, Amy Coney Barrett in the, um, in the book and uh, that she's a participant in some of these networks that, that you're looking at. Tell us how she fits into the story about um, this threat to constitutional liberty, especially as it's conceived by uh, progressives. Yeah, so I think Amy Coney Barrett is a fascinating uh, case study in that she brings together kind of mainstream conservative federal society types. Um, she clerked for Justice Scalia. She was an Olin fellow, right? Olin provided a series of kind of chairships at elite institutions specifically for conservative leaning um, law professors so that they could get credentialed and then hopefully get placed in elite law schools and start changing the conversation there. And so she has, you know, she's very strong on the Second Amendment. She's got this sort of mainstream libertarian conservative credentials, but she also 
embraces and represents a lot of these sort of Christian worldview folks that I interview and study for the second book, Separate But Faithful. So Amy Coney Barrett really is is an ideal uh, pick because she brings together um, what some would consider more kind of fringy elements of the Christian right, but marries them with these very strong libertarian kind of mainstream conservative credentials. Um, And so, you know, when she replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, uh, not only is it the single greatest ideological swing in a seat since uh, Clarence Thomas replaced Thurgood Marshall, but she also has this unique ability to legitimize the views of the Christian right through her kind of mainstream uh, connections and credentials. Um, Yeah. I was going to say, that's a great place. And you've sort of transitioned us to thinking about your first book, which I really want to ask you about. And um, just to reintroduce you, this is um, Sirius XM Progress. I'm Corey Brettschneider, and this is Pass the Mic. And we're speaking to Amanda Hollis Rusky. Uh, and we're talking to her about uh, really the assault uh, from the Supreme Court on our constitutional liberty. So So, Amanda, let me ask you um, in this kind of last bit that we have together uh, to talk about your first book, for which you are justly uh, extremely well in political science circles among scholars of the court, Uh, your look at the Federalist Society, ideas uh, with consequences. Uh, Now, they would say, I'll just kind of play their role for a second. Now, wait a second. This isn't about... um, values about Christianity. It's about the original meaning of the Constitution. And you don't want us imposing our conservative views, although we might have them. This is the sort of thing that Scalia uh, would often say, Justice Scalia. Um, Instead, what we're going to do is tell you what the Constitution meant at the time that it was ratified and as it was originally understood. And so, um, you know, Professor, you're you're attributing to us values and politics. We're just calling as Justice Roberts said, uh, we had on, by the way, uh, Senator Feingold, who said he can't even believe that that Justice Roberts would say that balls and strikes stuff again with a straight face at this moment. Maybe he would. But you know, just to, to play that role for a second, we're just calling balls and strikes and doing history and doing law, not politics. So why is that kind of miss what what you think is really going on in, in the Federalist Society and in the circles that are connected to it? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes about originalism, it's a critique, and it was by William Brennan, right, the liberal lion on the court for many years. And he was responding to Reagan's attorney general, Ed Meese, in the 1980s, when we first heard calls for what Meese then said was a return to the jurisprudence of original intent. And he has this very famous speech where he argues for why the court coming off the heels of the Warren courts, quote, judicial activism needed to return to a jurisprudence of original intent. And Brennan responded to that. And uh, the whole speech is wonderful, but there's a line where he says, originalism is nothing more than arrogance cloaked in humility. The idea that you believe you can transport yourself, number one, to the 18th century, put yourself in the framework of a founding uh, member of our country and try to understand how they would apply their limited understanding of law and politics to something very complicated, right? Like the Internet. 
for example, and privacy and drone surveillance. So it's arrogant, uh, but it's cloaked in humility because the argument is we're being judicially restrained. Right. When we do this, we're we're eliminating our own biases and we're just finding the original public meaning. Um, and Scalia had another line once where he didn't mean it to apply to originalism, but I think it did. He says, um, it's like if you look into a crowded room, you're going to immediately recognize your friends. Right. You, you are immediately drawn to those faces that you recognize. Um, and to me, originalism is like that. You can look at the founding generation and you can look at dozens of framers and historical figures and writings, and you're going to be attracted to the ones that sort of confirm your intuitions, the ones that feel familiar to you and that support your view. And so originalism, yes, it can be very conservative, but there's also a progressive form of originalism. I think here of second founding originalism at looking at the radical Republicans vision um, for re kind of uh, framing our entire country in the wake of the Civil War. If we took them seriously, then that changes how we think about the entire structure of government. And so I think when the federal society, it's a strategic move. Right. Of course. Um, and it, but you know, anyone who says that they're eliminating their own biases and subjective opinions when it comes to interpreting text that is vague and unclear and ambiguous, um, they're being arrogant and pretending humility. <laughs> Love it. Um, let me ask you, as we close out here, uh, a question that we really did try to use your book to answer, Virginia, that I spoke a little bit to uh, Senator Feingold about. Um, and that's the question of what 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 at, at a really dark time, frankly, for progressive constitutionalism, for progressive politics, when the court has really been clearly commandeered by the right. And, and if uh, we read your work, we learn it might get worse. Uh, what's the way to push back? What's the way to save our Constitution? Um, I'd welcome any thoughts at this moment, any hope. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Corey, in the short term, I think you have to regularize Supreme Court appointments. And if that means temporarily expanding the court and term limiting seats um, until the current justices die or retire and you get back to nine, you have to regularize Supreme Court appointments. And secondly, you have to win elections, right? Regularize Supreme Court appointments and win elections. I think longer term, um, I think what progressives want to want to think about is, you know, all of the ideas that are dismissed now on the left is too radical. Um, uh, there's a little bit of a timidity, I think, on the left to pursue those ideas and to build institutions around them and to have the patience and the foresight to keep pushing the conversation in a way that really aligns with progressive values. Um, and we've seen that that's what the conservatives have done exceptionally well. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, some of these ideas that they that are now mainstream were totally off the wall. Right. Totally wacky. Nobody took them seriously. And so thinking long term about how you build a progressive jurisprudence and fight for it and stay committed to it and be public about it and be unified about it. Um, and I think that is going to be the longer term project for for those on the left to make sure that we don't end up back here right, in another 50 years. Thank you so much. I think that's a terrific place to end. Um, uh, it's really been a pleasure to speak with Professor Amanda Hollis uh, Brusky, who's the chair of the Department of Politics at Pomona College. 
Um, and I'll mention her two books because I really think that listeners who want to understand this assault on our democracy, this assault on our constitution should read them uh, because it's really an examination of the structural way that this takeover has happened. And uh, the most recent book is Separate But Faithful, and that's written with Joshua C. Wilson. The subtitle is The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture. And I'll mention her first book, the extremely well-known and justly celebrated Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. Uh, Professor Amanda Hollis Bruski, thanks for joining us on SiriusXM Progress. This has been Pass the Mic. Thanks, Corey. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Thanks for joining us. We've heard from influential figures from film, from the U.S. Senate, from academia, and all have really been working with us together to understand the problem that we face now. And that's really the danger that our democracy, as longstanding as it might be, is in trouble, that there's a vulnerability, that it's in danger of collapse. And my hope has been, and I hope that you agree with me, that they've They've brought us perspectives, both from the international sphere, from the very local sphere, the NYPD, and from the questions of law and politics to see that threat and to address it head on. Of course, in the end, it's not going to be any of us that are gonna resolve these problems, but all of you, the listeners, those devoted to a progressive democracy. So thank you for listening. I'm Corey Brettschneider, and this has been Pass the Mic.